ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Is it time to amplify your income potential? Explore what a high-quality covered call strategy can do for your monthly income needs. Discover Amplify DIVO and IDVO providing monthly income potential and active management in the efficiency of an ETF. When income matters to you, explore Amplify ETFs. Get current monthly yields at AmplifyYields.com. There's no guarantee that distributions will be made. Investing risk includes principal loss. ETFs are subject to covered call risk. Visit AmplifyETFs.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully. Amplify ETFs are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me will be Dave Nodig, financial futurist at Vetify. And we have some very interesting topics to get into. Uh, you may have heard there's a bit of a uh, quote-unquote banking crisis going on right now, which that is uh, resurfaced this potential credit risk of ETNs, exchange-traded notes, uh, specifically this lineup of ETNs from Credit Suisse. And so we're going to discuss whether investors should be concerned at all uh, about those and really whether investors should be concerned about any other ETNs given everything going on. So we'll start there. And then on the topic of this banking crisis, I want to get Dave's thoughts on whether you should be doing anything differently in your portfolio right now in terms of portfolio construction. We'll talk cash management options, stocks, bonds. We'll just see where that uh, topic takes us. And then we'll close by discussing or maybe even debating a little crypto because the SEC, at least from my perspective, appears to be getting much more aggressive here. It looks like they've had just about enough of everything going on in the uh, crypto space. And so they're going full speed ahead with what looks like to me uh, to be regulation by enforcement because Congress has been unable to put a regulatory framework in place for crypto. And who knows how long that might take. So I think the SEC is simply policing crypto as they see fit right now. Very curious to hear what uh, Dave thinks about that. Also joining me this week will be Matt Bartolini, head of Spider America's research at State Street Global Advisors. Of course, State Street is the third largest ETF issuer. And Matt is going to recap the quarter that was in ETFs. Uh, we'll talk first quarter ETF flows, uh, performance, maybe crawl into a few sector spider ETFs. I, I would say few, if any, are better at covering this than Matt. So uh, look forward to that conversation as well. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's chat with Vetify's Dave Nodig. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. They're not just telling you what positions they've got. They're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Dave, welcome back to the uh, podcast. How have you been? Oh, man, it's great. Boy, busy weeks, huh? Every week, uh, it, it, it never fails. Uh, so, look, let's start on this topic of ETNs, exchange traded notes, which uh, unfortunately are back in the headlines again with this uh, banking crisis. And I do feel like every year or two, 
these end up in the headlines and it's typically not for good reasons. And maybe we can, uh, I can't think of one time it's been for a good reason. (laughs) Yeah. And I want to get into that actually. Let's talk about that here in a moment, but uh, ETNs are unsecured debt securities. They're issued by financial institutions or banks. And with the issues we've seen at Credit Suisse and some other banks, there are a few concerns floating around out there that these ETNs could run into issues. Now I should note that, ETNs are really a, uh, a tiny sliver of the ETF market overall. And even with uh, Credit Suisse, I mean, they currently offer, I believe, just four ETNs, at least four. ones that are listed, yeah. right? About $600 million in assets. The largest, and, and all of that's in one. It's in GLDI, right? Yeah, yeah. And, well, actually, I think it might be that uh, the covered call strategy on oil futures, uh, USOI. Oh, yeah, yeah, but, the oil one, too, yeah. But, but look, let's just start with the obvious question, and then we can go from there. So do you see any risk with these Credit Suisse ETNs? Like, should investors be concerned at all right now if they happen to be one of the, the very few that are invested in these? So the only reason I would be concerned is if you don't want to have timing exercised against you. I think there's very little chance that you get wiped, uh, which I know that sounds, that's sort of damning with faint praise. Very little chance you get wiped doesn't actually sound all that safe, does it? Uh, but, but the reality is, yes, you are an unsecured debtor of Credit Suisse. Everything in the unwind to UBS suggests that senior debt, which ETNs are, uh, is going to be just fine. It looks like it's only that additional tier one capital, the AT1 bonds that get wiped out, uh, so-called COCOs. Uh, and we can talk a little bit about that because there's some exposure issues there as well. But I don't think there's any chance that you are just going to get zeroed here. I think it's much more likely that UBS calls these bonds, they calls these notes, and therefore you basically just get your cash handed back to you at a, at a fair value that's a fine outcome. You get to do that without transaction costs if you just want to wait. However, if for some reason you care about when you're going to sell those things, you might want to do that on your own time. That would be my recommendation. And just out of curiosity, why would UBS call these? Do you think they just don't want to support these moving forward? Like, what would be the rationale just, for that? Just just hair, right? I mean, it's, these things would effectively have to be repapered as UBS debt at some point in this process. I don't think they're going to bother doing that. UBS has its own fairly extensive ETN division in E-Trax. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of uh, a lot of money in it, but it has, I think, some 24 or 30 products in it. Um, so it, they're one of the last banks standing in issuing these things. It doesn't seem that likely that they would want to hang on to this. I suspect whoever's in charge doing this merger uh, is going to see this as nothing but more hair in the derivatives book, and they're going to want to clean that up as fast as possible. So I, I would be a little surprised if they try to extend these products' lifetime, remarket them, rebrand them. I'd be much more likely to see them just close them down. Is there any impact uh, with some of the Credit Suisse ETNs that are just trading over the counter that, that have been previously delisted? Are those impacted at all? <laughs> <laughs> I know, again, this impacts I mean, like does, one out of every – Trillion investors. Yeah, I still have a share of a couple of those things kicking around in a Schwab account somewhere, and I haven't gotten any magical notifications (laughs) that somehow those are going to be useful again. Uh, No, I mean, if if you're owning some delisted piece of paper, you probably have an F after it. Um, I don't think I have TVIX F anymore, but I think I have some of the older ones. Are some of the more recent closures. Uh, no, those things you should have sold a long time ago when you had a chance to get a bid. Eventually, they're just going to disappear. When we talk about the credit risk of ETNs, and I should know this, but has any ETN ever gone bust due to a credit default other than those uh, the, the, the Lehman brother ETNs back in the day? Well, so I was going to say, I think the only ones that I can remember, and I don't have this in front of me, so this is now a memory poll, but I believe there were two ETNs that still had more than a million dollars outstanding when Lehman finally went under, and I believe that the final holders of that got paid something like 80 cents on the dollar. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, that, I'm, I'm now yanking that out of the deep memory bank. To The short answer is no, that's the only one that I think has happened uh, since this structure was invented. So let me ask you this, and I, I know we've discussed this a little bit in the past, but I, I'm curious if your mind has changed at all. Do you think ETN should exist at all? Because when we've discussed this in the past, I, I know we've talked about how banks haven't exactly supported these products with investors' best interests in mind. Uh, they've suspended creations. They've delisted ETNs. Uh, some of these products have blown up with the way they're structured, like uh, XIV. Should we just get rid of the ETN structure altogether? There's nothing about the structure that's inherently evil here. Um, you know, it, it has a couple of nice features 
uh, from an investment management perspective. One is that you can promise any pattern of returns and you are forced to deliver it, meaning you can write an ETN that says you're going to get paid based on changes in temperature in the Gobi Desert. And the bank is just committed to paying a pattern of returns based on whatever math they put in that offering document. That makes ETNs the ultimate flexible vehicle, much like a structured product is in the private space. Uh, so that's a, that's a useful thing. They also get taxed as prepaid forward contracts as long as they don't provide currency returns. Talk about a narrow exception. Um, and that basically means that you can take something that would normally be generating current income as a strategy, and by using an ETN to provide that exposure, you actually get to treat it more like a stock. So you can actually sort of embed all of that as capital gains. And for people who hold it, that's a useful feature. Now, whether or not there's enough demand from investors for whatever the pattern of returns banks want to package up to take advantage of that sort of flexibility and tax treatment has always been the issue with ETFs. Is there really enough there there to make it worthwhile? At this point, honestly, I don't think there's any point in shutting them down. Nobody's getting hurt by these things in particular. The ones that are left provide such narrow kinds of exposure. I mean, getting, you know, getting income out of your gold position with a regular distribution is not something many investors are chasing. Uh, so I, I'm fine that they continue to exist. I don't think it's worth bothering to regulate them out of existence. I think the market's kind of spoken. Yeah, I guess I just, you said, you know, investors aren't getting hurt. I guess I wonder, who these really help because you, you look right now, I believe there's like $10 billion in assets and ETNs altogether. But if you look at a lot of the, um, the, the top products, they're like triple levered, um, yeah, products. Yeah, that's and the only place there's been any new launches has been in this sort of excessive leverage space. Um, so, you know, for folks out there that really want to be juggling, uh, you know, knives, uh, you know, there, there's an opportunity there. Um, you can provide that kind of exposure in a wrapper, that you might not have been able to get past the SEC in a more traditional fund. Do we really need those things? I mean, come on, not really. Uh, but there are there are use cases. There are folks out there who want that kind of leverage and can't get access to it elsewhere. Yeah, it's just, again, it comes back to the, in my opinion, the lack of education around this structure. And so I do wonder if these products are primarily being used by retail investors. They don't understand the credit uh, credit risk. They don't understand how these products can be, you know, delisted, creations halted. W what was there one that we saw, like a clerical error, where one of the uh, the issuers yeah. didn't file a shelf registration? You know, just stuff like that. Now, I also don't want to talk out both sides because I know listeners of this podcast are well aware that, uh, you know, I'm a proponent of a uh, a spot Bitcoin ETF, and you know, <laughs> so you know, that's I'm a I'm, way cleaner structure. But Nate, I'm with you. That's a way cleaner structure. Like I can yeah. write you the prospectus for a Bitcoin ETF on two sides of one sheet of paper. ETNs are a lot more complicated. Yeah, no, no doubt. All right, so look, obviously, most investors have uh, zero exposure to Credit Suisse ETNs. Let's move on here and discuss this banking crisis itself. And I saw in a piece sure. that you recently published, you noted how most investors have zero exposure to Credit Suisse itself, right? It, it was a small percentage uh, of the holdings in something like the Vanguard FTSE Developed Markets ETF, ticker VEA. Now, certainly investors likely have uh, more broad exposure to financials overall, but I, I don't think most investors are going to try and sidestep that sector altogether. And so here's my question for you, Dave. As we sit here today, what, if anything, do you think the average advisor or investor should be doing right now, given the banking situation? Should they be doing anything differently than they were, say, back in January? The only thing that I think, I and, and I think this is valid, there are many advisors out there who work with entrepreneurial, high net worth individuals. That's a big chunk of the financial advisor market. Those types of individuals are the most likely to have their personal wealth tied up with a local or regional kind of bank, like an SVB type bank. Now, SVB was the biggie there by like, you know, 85% market share for that kind of activity. Um, but if you are an advisor who has a, re a, a client list full of folks who have multi-million dollar cash balances held at some regional bank because generally there's a loan covenant that requires something like that, it's worth taking a look and making sure that you're at least using the cash sweeps to move that money into a money market fund at that institution if you have to, or more to the point, just make sure you understand where your cash is. Now, I, that sounds almost ridiculously simple. I hope there's literally nobody listening to this for whom that applies who has not already done that 
right? Because this seems like job one of an advisor. If you don't know where your client's cash is, I don't know what you're doing. This, to me, seems like it could be a huge tailwind for um, like short-term cash management ETF. So I was oh, looking, sure. like, if you, I was looking yesterday, I believe something like twenty billion dollars has gone into shorter-term Treasury ETFs this year. And if you look at the uh, the top twenty ETFs overall by inflows, seven are Treasury. Related. There's actually been $40 billion into Treasury ETFs overall, which, again, some different use cases there as you get further out on the curve. But, you know, that's saying something, given there's only been about $70 billion into uh, ETFs overall. And, and we can certainly talk about other products outside of the Treasury space, something like JPST, the, uh, the, the JP Morgan Ultra Short-Term Income ETF, Mint, the PIMCO Enhanced uh, Short Maturity Active ETF. I, I'm assuming you agree that this could be a huge tailwind. Yeah, of course. And and look, if we see the moves in the in the curve, right? I, you know, a couple of weeks ago when all this was really hitting, uh, I, I believe yields on the two year dropped the most they dropped in like I don't know months or years or something like that. That that's going to be a sensitive part of the curve. People look at the two year as sort of that safety bucket. Uh, it tends to be the one that's most policy influenced. But you know, everybody talks about the two ten spread to measure the curve. So I definitely expect that you will see continued flow into that sort of that middle part of the curve, that short middle part of the curve. Uh, and what that means, obviously, is people will bid those things up, which means the yields will come down. Now, I don't think we're in a position where so much money is going to flood the short end of the curve that all of a sudden we, re, you know, we get back to some sort of normalized curve and, and you know, you're getting a percent and a half spread over the 210 or something like that. Uh, I think we have a ways to go before we get there. Uh, but there's no question we're going to see the short end of the Treasury curve played around with by investors managing their cash, whether those are institutions moving money uh, out of liquidity and directly into treasuries, or whether it's just the average retail investor realizing they should maybe sweep a hundred grand out of their Schwab checking account over into the Schwab brokerage account, and then they're going to put it in JPST or Mint. I'm really glad you brought up the uh, the yield curve because uh, I, I have a little bit of a riddle for you. So I, I think one of the biggest stories in the market so far this year. Uh, putting aside the, the you know the headlines of this banking crisis, it's this disconnect between stocks and bonds. Where yeah. if you look at the S and P five hundred, despite everything that's gone on, uh, you look it's actually up about one percent this month. Meanwhile, to your point, you look at bond yields. Yeah, the, the two year Treasury yield has gone from around five percent to below four percent just this month. The ten year has dropped something like fifty basis points from its March high. So. It, what do you make of that? I mean, do you think these moves and yields are related to the banking crisis or is there more going on here and why are the stocks I, well, hung in? I mean, what's going on? The, the, the answer is always all of the above and the 25 things we don't know about. Uh, but look, I think there are a couple things here. I think there is legitimately a disconnect between what the market on average believes the Fed will end up having to do and what the Fed is broadcasting it is going to do, right? I mean, depending on who you want to read today, because it'll change by the afternoon, right? Now, I would say the average market participant is saying, oh, look, we're going to have cuts by the end of the year. And it's just a question of whether that's 25 or 50. So, you know, not an avoided recession. Uh, things look a little bad. We're going to get a cut or two. The Fed, meanwhile, is still saying another 25 business on the way. So there's there's just this massive disconnect between how we get from where we are today and two very different outcomes of where we are at the end of this year. One of them will be more right than the other. And honestly, I'm not going to sit here and flip coins about whether the market's right or the Fed is right. I generally don't like betting against the market. The market tends to get right more often than not. But I mean, come on, it's a total crapshoot. But at the same time, we should acknowledge that flow dynamics are in fact impacting markets in ways that we used to dismiss and I think now have a lot of evidence are real. Uh, and that, that impacts uh, equities when we see giant flows into equities. It obviously impacts bonds when we see giant flows into bonds. Those things have to live in concert. So the real world cash management of businesses and wealthy individuals is running up against sort of macro-based, policy-based trading in these markets. And they have very different objectives. You know, if I'm sitting here saying, oh, golly, I don't know where to park cash for two years. I'm going to go to Treasury Direct and put $100,000 directly into a two-year auction. That's a very different position than some hedge fund who's trying to trade the curve, right? And they, they don't necessarily interact in an obvious way. So, Dave, I mean, what's the takeaway for investors from that? And obviously, look, you're not here to dispense investment advice. We don't do that on this podcast. But, I mean, if you had some words of wisdom for investors 
you know, given the current dynamics, what might those be? Well, I, so the, the, I'm going to steal this from somebody. I don't know where I read it first, but I, you know, I think we've gone from a Tina market to a Terra market, right? There are real alternatives. Uh, and, and what that means as an advisor is you have to pay a lot of attention. And I know that I say that a lot, uh, but I think we have reached, if not the terminal state of the bond market, we never will. We've reached a bit of a light, a level, right? I don't think anybody thinks, for instance, that, uh, we're going to get another 2% of, of hikes in interest rates. Nobody, nobody has a ceiling that is that outrageously far above. We're either at sort of where we're going to hang or plus or minus 25, 50 basis points. That makes it a time where it's okay to start thinking about the bond market again. That, I think, is the message of the rest of this year. Start paying attention to the fixed income portion of your portfolio in a way that you have not had to do for at least 15, if not 25 years. That's a really interesting time to be a financial advisor. There are folks out there who will build their practices based on getting some calls right. But also there are also a, you know, a lot of regular old financial planning focused advisors out there who finally have the opportunity to have a meaningful conversation with their clients about risk and reward. Uh, and, you know, and being a little risk off right now and leaning a little bit more into the safety of U.S. Treasuries no longer feels like the dumbest idea ever. And it used to. All right. Speaking of real alternatives, and you're going to have to forgive me for this transition here, but uh, one of the more <laughs> interesting things about the banking crisis, at least to me, is that crypto has been doing very well. I mean, you, you look at yeah. Bitcoin, that's up about 65 percent year to date and nearly 20 percent just in March. Uh, again, while we've had this banking turmoil, do you have any thoughts around what we've seen here? And I'll tell you, I talked a little bit about this uh, last week with your good friend, Matt Hogan. He's pretty bullish. Uh, Actually, I would say very, yeah, uh, very bullish, but I'd love to hear your take. Yeah, so look, we went through this, we've been through this strange, like, movement in crypto in general. We went from Bitcoin being digital gold, and therefore it was the ultimate risk-off asset. Then we went through the entire pandemic window, and I would argue probably a year before that, where Bitcoin was just trading like any other risk asset. I mean, we all remember those days, the S&P down 3%, Bitcoin down 3%, S&P up 5 Bitcoin up 7 Like, I mean, it used to just do that day to day to day. What we've seen since this mini banking crisis we're in is the reversion to the narrative of Bitcoin being the sort of counter systemic asset. Uh, and you know, along, we should point out gold's been ripping too, right? So like the, that sort of counter systemic trade, um, has some corollaries. We see why people are doing it. Um, now I, I think it's actually really good that this is happening after this crypto winter we had. I'm, I'm really, really very happy that we didn't come into this with Bitcoin already at 40,000 because I think we really would end up in some crazy irrational territory if that had happened. So I like the fact, I mean, I don't like that anybody lost money, but I like the fact that we sort of flushed a little bit of the hype out of the market uh, before we had this sort of test case of the safety scenario for Bitcoin, the counter systemic uh, argument for Bitcoin. But it's clear that to me that that's what's going on. At the same time, we should point out that we've got this huge crackdown coming from U.S. regulators, which I am absolutely not a fan of. We have a whole other conversation about that. But that crackdown has been very specifically at the exchange and non-Bitcoin product level. Bitcoin does seem to have some sort of regulatory halo, and I, I hesitate to put it that way. But nobody seems to be coming after Bitcoin directly the way they're going after Binance and FTX and individual projects that they're now saying were securities. That, I think, probably is shaking some folks out of the fringes of crypto and back into Bitcoin as well. Well, let's talk more about that SEC crackdown. You heard me allude to this at the top. I mean, they they just issued a Wells notice to Coinbase, which means they are likely to pursue some sort of enforcement action. Um, I saw a bunch of, uh, quote unquote, celebrities have been charged by the SEC for pumping Mm -hmm. crypto, right? The SEC just put out a pretty comprehensive investor alert on crypto. They're clearly getting much more aggressive. So is there any way anything to take away from that? And again, going back to uh, our good friend, Matt Hogan, I saw he tweeted last week that uh, Coinbase versus SEC is going to be good for crypto long term. Do you agree with that uh, line of thinking? Is this all a good thing from the SEC? Uh, no, uh, I, I think that we as a as a country are doing precisely the wrong thing. You and I have talked about this for years, Nate. 
Uh, you know I've been a fan of, of early and proactive regulation. I think it, was, it would have been the key to making the U.S. the center of innovation in this space. Uh, I think that ship has sailed. I think it is irrescuably gone. If you look at new and interesting crypto projects that are popping up, which still happen, right, and there's still some amazing innovation going on in the space, it's just a lot less hypey than it used to be. And you look at where those projects are based, you look at which countries you're allowed to participate from, and we, the United States is now on a list with like Iran and Syria and North Korea of countries that can't participate in new crypto projects. Like you just, as a U.S. citizen, you cannot take that risk. That's terrible. I don't see that there's a rosy case for it. Well, I don't know if you saw this uh, over the weekend, but Barron's had an interview with uh, SEC Commissioner Hester Pierce, a crypto mom, right? And we all know she's a mom. Yeah. And look, she's she's a proponent of crypto innovation overall. But I still thought her comments here were pretty interesting and telling. So she said, uh, quote, I don't think enforcement is the right approach to bring regulation to a space. And then she said, if that's how uh, they approach things with crypto, she calculated this out. I don't know how she did it, but you'll, you'll <laughs> like this. this. She said it I could take it. something like 400 years to get a regulatory framework in place uh, for, for crypto. And she also said, <laughs> we're all wasting a lot of time thinking about questions that we in Congress could resolve. Um, do, do you think this is ultimately a leadership issue in D.C.? Like, does somebody just need to step up and, and take the ball on this and, and start running? What Like, wh- where's the bottleneck? Where's, where does this really um, – wh- where's the, the real pain point? Like, how do we resolve this? Well, honestly, this is my, my bizarre hot take. I think one of the problems crypto has right now is that it's too bipartisan. And what I mean by that is there's sort of like half of Republicans and half of Democrats – believe opposite things about this, right? Because you can find very prominent proponents of, uh, you know, loose regulation, you know, innovation forward on both sides of the aisle. And you can find people who think it's the end of the world and everybody should go to jail on both sides of the aisle. That makes it very difficult for anybody to lead, to be honest. So we have seen, I mean, some of the proposals that have come out for regulation have been bipartisan. And I think that's great. But it actually makes it more difficult to get the airtime to move this ball forward. I also think that the timing here has been awful. Um, it's obviously no senator is going to, or no House of Reps is going to get up there and really put stuff on the line on crypto when we just had crypto winter flush out underneath us. And now with the banking crisis, to, it would seem, I'm sure, to many people to be irrational or irresponsible to start talking about DeFi again. So I get why we're sort of trapped here. It doesn't make me hate it anymore that we're trapped here, and any less that we're trapped here. Dave, just about a minute left before we uh, before I let you go. I saw you posted a very interesting piece today on uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, this is titled Chat GPT, Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes. Of course, posted at ETFtrends.com. Uh, do you want to just give us a little preview of that? I'd encourage everybody to go read it. I, I thought it was a really, uh, again, interesting dive into everything going on here. We're all seeing the headlines. Give us a quick preview. Yeah, so I just, I've like like a lot of people, I've spent you know as much time in the minds of this stuff as I can since these things got released last fall. Um, there's been a lot of hyperbole, uh, particularly in the financial advisor space, in the last couple weeks. Folks talking about how ChatGPT was going to take over their jobs and uh, make financial advisors obsolete and, uh, you know, all my writers are going to get fired and all that kind of stuff. I I wanted to write a little bit of a centrist piece on what's really going on with the tools that are actually right in front of us and encourage advisors in particular to use these tools, not because they're necessarily going to change your practice or you're going to make a bunch of money on them, but because they're a new tool in your toolbox. And the faster you learn how to use a new tool, the better the advantage you get over your competitors and the better you can do your job as an advisor. I liken this to, you know, if you were a a merchant uh, in 400 BC sitting there using an abacus and I came to you and showed you Microsoft Excel, you would laugh at me. You have no idea what I'm talking about. You're missing all the context. I think there's a danger of getting caught in that unless we all learn how to use all the interim tools along the way. So, the tools we've got right now, even just ChatGPT4, are enormously useful assistants. That's what they are. They don't know anything, but they can help you do some things. And I encourage advisors to get out there and start playing with it and learn how it can help. Do you think these tools could have a meaningful impact uh, on the world of ETFs? Like, I know we have a handful of ETFs using AI to parse 
uh, news and, and earnings releases and those sorts of things. But do you see this having a, a more meaningful impact moving forward? So, yes, but probably not in the way some people think. Uh, I don't believe this is going to create a magic stock picking engine because I think people are complicated. Uh, and the best thing we do with things like chat, like particularly with large language models, is we mimic the human behavior, right? We train it on humans. We train it on what we know and what we've written. Uh, that That's a pretty well explored well in finance. I mean, you can imagine over the years, uh, a lot of the early machine learning stuff went to where the money is, like it always does, and it went into the hedge fund community, it went into the quants of the world. So there's been a lot of work there that's done already. I don't think there's a magic box that's going to make people more money that comes out of this. However, what there is is a huge way of cutting time out of your day. Uh, you know, the, I, the, the most banal use cases for it actually tend up to be the best. Somebody sends you a 2,000-word article you don't have time to read. You cut and paste it and say, give me a five-bullet-point summary. It's extraordinarily good at that. Uh, you got 10 news articles you don't have time to parse, but you want to figure out who the people who are quoted in it. You paste in 4,000 words of text, and it says, here are the four good quotes. Those are really, really helpful time savers. That's what you should lean into and ignore all the FUD, right? Ignore all the doomerism that this is going to change, like, all of a sudden, everybody's going to be out of work, and we're all going to be peons on subsistence farmers. That's not how the real world works. I need to uh, run a little experiment and, and try using that for my uh, my talking points, my bullet points for this podcast. See how well it does uh, hosting. <laughs> but, uh, you'd, you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. <laughs> Dave, uh, simply fantastic stuff this week. Always love our uh, conversations. Thank you for joining me. Uh, see you next month, Nate. That was Dave Nottig, financial futurist at Vetify. How can investors access innovative companies? One way is through Invesco's Innovation Suite. It offers access to the world's most groundbreaking companies that have demonstrated a strong commitment to innovation through research and development, including patents. Invesco offers a variety of options across all sizes and types of innovative companies. Explore the possibilities at Invesco.com slash Innovation Suite. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus with this information. Read it carefully before investing. Risks involved with investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs are subject to risks similar to those of stocks. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Is it time to amplify your income potential? Explore what a high-quality covered call strategy can do for your monthly income needs. Discover Amplify DIVO and IDVO providing monthly income potential and active management in the efficiency of an ETF. When income matters to you, explore Amplify ETFs. Get current monthly yields at AmplifyYields.com. There's no guarantee that distributions will be made. Investing risk includes principal loss. ETFs are subject to covered call risk. Visit AmplifyETFs.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully. Amplify ETFs are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. I'm now joined by Matt Bartolini, head of Spider America's research at State Street Global Advisors, who currently offers over 140 ETFs, nearly $1 trillion in assets. Matt is absolutely one of my favorite resources on ETF flows and performance and really just offering the pulse of everything going on in ETFs. And he's now on the line with me from Boston. Matt, thank you for joining me this week. Yeah, thanks for having me on. All right, so look, let's uh, jump right in here and start with first quarter ETF flows, and then we can certainly uh, branch out from there. And I would say ETF flows overall have been pretty muted, at least compared to the past several years. And we can debate whether or not that's surprising, but I'll just note that the S&P 500 is up about 4% this year. Uh, bonds are up, right? This this definitely isn't like the carnage we experienced last year. And if you go back to that time, ETFs had taken in around $200 billion at this point. So maybe give us a few headline flow numbers from the first quarter, and then I'd love to hear your take on what you think is going on here. Yeah, so the flows to start this year are definitely muted. So Q1, as of today, is around $77 billion, which is 15% below the historical 10-year Q1 average. 
And actually, it's the lowest since March 2020, because as you noted, in, in 2022, there's $200 billion. In 2021, there's $250 billion in the first quarter. Now, I think sort of looking beneath the surface, bond funds, they really did the heavy lifting this quarter. They took in around $46 billion, which is 60% of all the flows. And I think it's worth pointing out that bond ETFs only make up 20% of all ETF AUM. So bond funds are definitely punching above their weight. But it's really just not all. It's not all bonds, though. It's government exposures. Government exposures have taken in 85% of all the bond flows this quarter because they've taken in around $39 billion. And even so, it's not just all government bond funds. It's ultra short. Ultra short took in $25 billion. $14 billion of that came in during March as the market was really faced with that risk-off sentiment amid that uptick in both rate and equity volatility. You know, and look, we also have the Fed funds uh, moving higher with the Fed hiking rates. You have T-bills you know, yielding over 4.5%. And, you know, we've seen some pretty significant inflows into our funds that cover those T-bill markets in BIL and BILS. They've taken in $4 billion combined this month. And sort of going back to the whole thing, and it's not all bonds, is that the rest of the bond categories are pretty mixed. So six out of the 11 categories that we, we look at, uh, they had outflows this year. Uh, and it's really led by the outflows from high yield, which sort of speaks to some of the risk-taking that we're witnessing so far this quarter. In terms of the lack of inflows into equity ETFs, and U.S. equity ETFs in particular, as I look at this, I, I, I think that clearly investors are concerned around uh, the, the Fed and perhaps that they might over-tighten and spark a recession. Clearly, we have this uh, recent banking crisis going on, which has caused some concerns. So to me, it just looks like investors are taking sort of a wait-and-see approach to the markets. Do you think it's that simple uh, on the U.S. equity side of the equation? Yeah, I always go back to sort of childhood memory on this when going fishing. It was always like you would want to keep all your lures and you don't want to waste them. So you're too afraid to fish, as uh, my friends would say. And I think investors are sort of too afraid to fish in this marketplace. So they're sort of taking a wait-and-see approach. Because if you look at the equity landscape, particularly relative to bonds, the equity risk premium is not really indicating really strong returns for subsequent periods. And in fact, you know, if you look at valuations, they're rich for equities, while bond valuations are, you know, if you go back over the last 20 years, they're in the 80th percentile and look at yield. So investors are probably more... Um, looking at the landscape and seeing that bonds just offer a better risk reward. And I think we're seeing that come through in the flows as well. When we look at headline flows, they're be- they are being dragged down by equities. They've only taken in $33 billion so far in the first quarter, and that's compared to a, a historical $64 billion. Now, non-U.S. equities, the outside, you know, international equities, EFA-type ETFs, They've taken in $28 billion, and that is above their average of $24 billion. So it's really investors within equities. They looked at overseas markets at a higher rate than average. U.S. equity exposures have had really low inflows. And actually, they had to start January and February. They actually had outflows. And that was the first time uh, since 2018 that U.S. equity funds had had outflows in back-to-back months. And as we stand right now, Q1 flows are just $4 billion. And that's only because we saw some inflows in March of $7 billion. So that $4 billion is 87% below the historical $39 billion Q1 average for U.S. equity exposure. So definitely investors are a little bit uh, afraid to go fishing in this type of marketplace, particularly stretch valuations, earning sentiment is weak, macro volatility is high. Uh, there's you know, a lot of sort of headwinds as opposed to tailwinds. Why do you think the uh, uptick in interest in international ETFs? And I'll, I'll give you uh, a couple of data points here, which caught my attention. I was checking these this morning. So if you look at, say, uh, an ETF like SPDW, that's up about 22% since October 1st versus 12% uh, in SPY. And I've wondered if maybe investors have seen that outperformance. That's a pretty significant outperformance over the past, you know, whatever, six months or so from international. I wonder if that's driving uh, some of the interest here. I, I know you and I have talked about this before. I think certainly, and this has been talked about for years, the uh, perceived better relative valuations overseas. What do you think the drivers are? are those two, or is it those two things or are there some other factors here? 
So it's definitely so those two things are definitely applied. So when we look at it, sort of three quantitative factors: it's momentum, earning sentiment, valuations. Momentum, if we just sort of isolate non-U.S. versus U.S., momentum is stronger for non-U.S. equities relative to U.S., uh, which I think is actually interesting. It's heading into this year. Um, U.S. stocks had beaten non-U.S. in 55 consecutive rolling 12-month periods. That ended on December 2022. And that was one basically, a, a, you know, almost near a record streak because it was 56 consecutive periods back in 99. So I think that's pretty significant, right? So there's definitely a turn in momentum from that perspective. Secondarily, valuations. Valuations in the U.S. are, are above their historical average, whether you're looking at price to earnings, price to book, price to sales. Uh, Non-U.S., they're below their historical average, where particularly in markets in Europe are more attractive than the rest of the um, non-U.S. equity exposures. Earnings sentiment, uh, we've seen, you know, still more downgrades relative to upgrades for non-U.S. stocks like we have with U.S., but the severity has been less. Uh, we actually see positive uh, upside aggregate revisions in terms of the, the total growth expected for 2023 that has been revised higher for non-U.S. equities while it's been revised lower for U.S. equities. So you have positive momentum, more constructive valuations, to then go along with better relative earnings sentiment. And then also you have you know, China reopening, European markets, Asia tech markets are closer to that. So you take all these things combined and it's just a more constructive backdrop to be going overweight non-U.S. equities. And we've seen investors do that. Matt, one of the areas I always like to dive into with you is the sector spider ETFs. And if I look at first quarter flows, there were several interesting things that stood out to me. We can get into some of those. But in particular, um, tech stocks stood out. So if you look at an ETF like XLK, the uh, Technology Select Sector Spider ETF, that's up about 16% this year. But I'm showing this ETF has actually had about $2 billion in outflows. And I'm curious what you think is going on uh, there. From my perspective, I just wonder – if that's a really good example of sort of the investor hesitancy out there right now, you know, we were talking about the U.S. equity ETF flows or, or lack thereof. To me, this is kind of a good example. It's like investors just aren't buying the uh, the, the up move here. But I'm, I'm curious, what's your take? So my, my view is, and I'd step back just a little bit to look at broad-based sectors. So broad-based sectors are a great indication of the risk appetite of investors because you are essentially making a very distinct expression of active risk within a portfolio and deliberately going over underweight a specific segment. In sectors, in the aggregate, the flows have been weak. They've posted outflows for four consecutive months. That's the longest streak of outflows ever. And it's been from both cyclicals and defensives, and both of those groups are in outflows this year. So there's a lack of risk-taking. Now, with respect to XLK and technology, so at first glimpse, you'd say, yes, this is very much at odds with performance, but it's not really entirely because ETFs are just such a fascinating vehicle. You need to look at sort of the flexibility. You can go long and you can go short. So in 2022, we saw significant inflows into the fund, more than $1 billion despite tech falling 30%. Yet a portion of those inflows were from investors going short. So using a long-to-lend type strategy, shares are created, lent out to an investor who then shorts them. So creating shares to go short. It's just one of the use cases of ETFs. It's really interesting. It's a, it's, there's so many different reasons for why they use them. And we see it across many different types of funds. So short interest climbed in 2022. Since the end of the year, we have seen short interest starting to fall. And that has coincided with outflows as shorts are being covered. Now, why are the re- what's the reason for shorts, be- shorts being covered and that short covering? It's that tech has rallied. You know, rates have declined, long-duration equity exposures like tech, communication services, discretionary stocks, growth stocks, they've rallied. So investors have covered their shorts, and that has led to some outflows. And I think this sort of, you know, juxtaposition of buying behavior or lack thereof really just sort of paints a picture of the flexibility of the ETF structure and how not all flows can be positive, right? All of those inflows in 2022 are actually a result of people wanting to bet against the market. No, very interesting uh, description there. Yeah, sometimes you have to look beneath the uh, the headline number. So I guess on that note, what about financials? So XLF, the uh, Financial Select Sector Spider ETF, that's down nearly 8% year-to-date. But 
again, I'm showing hardly any outflows in this case, which I think some people might find surprising. Any thoughts on what's going on there? Yeah, so sort of a horse of a different color to a degree here. You know, we saw modest outflows leading up to the more recent banking crisis. And then we saw massive inflows that correlated back to two main sources of buying behavior. Heavy call-side buying in the options market tied to ETFs like XLK, but also KRE and KBE, the regional and broad bank ETF that we saw. They, those two, they saw record options buying. So heavy call-side buying as a result of a severe dip in, in the overall market. And then it was just dip buying. We've actually seen inflows the past few days because of dip buying as a result of those sizable drawdowns. Now, someone could say, well, aren't those inflows? You just talked about long-to-lend. Couldn't that be just long-to-lend? Well, no. When we look at short interest and we use a couple different sources for it, we don't see really any meaningful uptick in short interest across any of the financial sector ETFs. So the flows in the financials, they're muted because you had outflows leading up to it because, you know, sort of recessionary fears, you know, perhaps correctly, you know, wanting to go underweight ahead of a banking crisis. But then massive inflows are a result of dip buying and really call call option buying. Matt, sort of on this topic, if we look at an ETF like XLF or, uh, to your point, if we drill down even further into an ETF like KRE, the uh, Spider S&P Regional Banking ETF, you recently wrote what I thought was a uh, a fantastic piece about how ETFs handled the recent banking crisis. And I wanted to touch on this because, once again, in times of turmoil, guess what? Investors turn to ETFs. And ETFs didn't let investors down. I'd love to have you talk a bit about that piece because I thought you made some really important points in that. Yeah. I mean, so a couple the big points are financial. And I looked at not just our funds. I wanted to sort of show the broader sort of sector ETF landscape that's focused just on financial stocks. So financial sector ETFs, secondary market trading volumes surged to over $13 billion uh, at the onset of the recent banking crisis, and that was five times greater than the normal daily average, right? So that's point one. Second point, primary market activity increased at a slower pace. So it wasn't a one-for-one. One. Actually, that, prim- that secondary to primary market ratio increased well above the average, and that shows additive liquidity being provided by the ETF. So more transactions are taking place between willing buyers and sellers at a fair market price on an exchange, without having to tap into the underlying market. Then the total percentage, because you're not tapping into that underlying market, the total percentage of trading in financial sector stocks from financial sector ETFs was basically 1.7%. So all you know, financial sector ETF trading activity in the fund only accounted for about 1.7% of overall financial sector stock volume. So Basically, ETFs were not pushing prices around because I've never seen 1.7% of something result in you know, 20% drawdown. Uh, and then the last point, financial sector ETF options daily volumes skyrocketed to over 1.7 million contracts, well above the average of 150,000. So massive uptick in call option buying because actually a heavy call side. There's, some put, there's obviously put side buying, but very, very much on the call side. So those four points lead me to sort of four takeaways. One, investors gravitate to ETFs during times of stress as valuable price discovery tools. Two, ETFs provided and provide additive liquidity beyond what's available in the primary market. Three, ETF trading does not have an outsized impact on trading of underlying securities. And then four, this speaks to the options, this speaks to the shorting that I mentioned earlier, use cases for ETFs range from traditional, just going long, to complex, you know, creating differentiated and sophisticated trades to, you know, buy the dip or to position for near-term volatility. So, again, ETFs during a period of crisis really showcase a lot of valuable traits, and it's really interesting to dig into those. I couldn't have said it better. You know, it's funny. You and I have been in this industry for a long time. We've seen the, uh, the, the negative headlines, the scare tactic headlines out there around ETFs. And what happens every single time there's some sort of market turmoil, um, ETFs come shining through. I, your first point to me is the biggest one, which investors gravitate towards ETF during times of stress because there is that 
that price discovery element. There is liquidity. We see it over and over again. Uh, I, I wonder at what point the uh, the negative narrative will go, uh, go away. But uh, Matt, just a couple of minutes left here. Going back to the uh, the, the sector spiders, I know there were some recent shakeups in terms of the uh, sector composition with the uh, GIX changes. Is there anything noteworthy there that you think investors should be aware of? Anything that you would highlight? Yeah, so the GIX changes were implemented uh, on uh, the Friday, the 17th, so St. Patrick's Day. Uh, they were uh, impacting roughly about five different sectors. So, you know, the big one was Visa and MasterCard. They were being reclassified from tech to financials, which I think is just a really healthy modernization of the GIX structure because I think a lot of people previously thought they would be in financials. And I think it also speaks to how we are conducting financial services and financial payments. You know, uh, they should be within the financial services um, industry and and within the financial sector. The other big one is, and I, again, it sort of, you know, reflects sort of the modernization of the GIC structure. You had firms like Target, which were in discretionary, but Walmart was in staples. So as a result of changing the changes under underneath the service and how retail is being reflected, uh, firms like Target, Dollar General, and Dollar Tree moved from consumer discretionary to consumer staples. So those are really the two big changes. Ultimately, there were five sectors really impacted. So tech lost lost some securities, financials gained. Tech lost some securities again, while industrials gained for you know firms that are within you know certain software servicing type of industries like um, automatic data processing was previously a tech now it's an industrial consumer discretionary move to consumer staples so those are your five sectors um, ultimately 14 stocks in the S&P 500 moved and it was just basically 3.7 percent of the overall market cap of the S&P 500 so uh, insightful impactful probably not so much as a task exchanges where in 2018 you had communication services basically create be created as a new sector and then same thing within 2016 when real estate was created um, but definitely some changes that people should be aware of and we have plenty of information out on our website on ssga.com around these gigs changes the impacts the fundamentals and so on and so forth well matt simply fantastic perspective this week absolutely no surprise coming from you uh, you know i always enjoy our conversations thank you for joining me this week thanks Nate. That was Matt Bartolini, head of Spider America's research at State Street Global Advisors. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Simplify Asset Management. If you would like to learn more about Simplify, you can visit simplify.us. Next week, I'll be joined by Bob Elliott, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Unlimited Fund. So he's going to talk financial markets and spotlight the Unlimited HFND Multi-Strategy Return Tracker ETF. Uh, if you're not familiar with Bob, I'm telling you, you're in for a real treat. And then uh, Crane Shares Luke Oliver will discuss their uh, climate-aligned ETFs. Until then, have a great week, everyone.